0: Chapter 13 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee. Chapter 13 A Cunning Rascal. Yes, left severely alone, continued the man in the corner with a sarcastic chuckle. So severely alone, in fact that one quarter of an hour after another passed by, and still the magnificent police officer in the gorgeous uniform did not return. Then, when it was too late, Schwartz cursed himself once again for the double-dyed idiot that he was. He had been only too ready to believe that Prince Semyonitz was a liar and a rogue, and under these unjust suspicions he had fallen an all-too-easy prey to one of the most cunning rascals he had ever come across. An inquiry from the hall-porter at the Northwestern elicited the fact that no such personage as Mr. Schwartz described had entered the hotel. The young man asked to see Prince Semyonitz, hoping against hope that all was not yet lost. The prince received him most courteously. He was dictating some letters to his secretary, while the valet was in the next room preparing his master's evening clothes. Mr. Schwartz found it very difficult to explain what he actually did want. There stood the dressing-case in which the prince had locked up the jewels, and there the bag from which the secretary had taken the banknotes. After much hesitation on Swartz's part and much impatience on that of the prince, the young man blurted out the whole story of the so-called Russian police officer, whose card he still held in his hand. The prince, it appears, took the whole thing wonderfully good-naturedly. No doubt he thought the jeweler a hopeless fool. He showed him the jewels, the receipt he held, and also a large bundle of banknotes similar to those Swartz had with such culpable folly given to the clever rascal in the cab i pay all my bills with bank of england notes mr schwartz it would have been wiser perhaps if you had spoken to the manager of the hotel about me before you were so ready to believe any cock-and-bull story about my supposed rogueries finally he placed a small sixteen-month volume before the young jeweller and said with a pleasant smile if people in this country who are in a large way of business and are therefore likely to come in contact with people of foreign nationality or to study these little volumes before doing business with any foreigner who claims a title, much disappointment and a great loss would often be saved. Now, in this case, have you looked up page 797 of this little volume of Gotha's Almanac? You would have seen my name in it, and known from the first that the so-called Russian detective was a liar. There was nothing more to be said, and Mr. Schwartz left the hotel. No doubt, now that he had been hopelessly duped, he dared not go home, and half hoped by communicating with the police— that they might succeed in arresting the thief before he had time to leave Liverpool. He interviewed Detective Inspector Watson, and was at once confronted with the awful difficulty which would make the recovery of the bank-notes practically hopeless. He had never had the time or opportunity of jotting down the numbers of the notes. Mr. Winslow, though terribly wrathful against his nephew, did not wish to keep him out of his home. As soon as he had received Schwartz's letter, he traced him, with Inspector Watson's help, to his lodgings in North Street where the unfortunate young man meant to remain hidden until the terrible storm had blown over, or perhaps until the thief had been caught red-handed with the booty still in his hands. This happy event, needless to say, never did occur, though the police made every effort to trace the man who had decoyed Schwartz into the cab. His appearance was such an uncommon one, it seems most unlikely that no one in Liverpool should have noticed him after he left that cab. The wonderful fur coat, the long beard, all must have been noticeable, even though it was past four o'clock on a somewhat foggy December afternoon. But every investigation proved futile. No one answering Schwartz's description of the man had been seen anywhere. The papers continued to refer to the case as the Liverpool mystery. Scotland Yard sent Mr. Fairburn down, the celebrated detective, at the request of the Liverpool police to help in the investigations, but nothing availed. Prince Semionitz, with his suite, left Liverpool, and he who had attempted to blacken his character And had succeeded in robbing Messrs. Winslow and Vassal of ten thousand five hundred pounds had completely disappeared. The man in the corner readjusted his collar and necktie, which during the narrative of this interesting mystery had worked its way up his long crane-like neck under his large flappy ears. His costume of check tweed of a peculiarly loud pattern had tickled the fancy of some of the waitresses who were standing, gazing at him and giggling in one corner. This evidently made him nervous he gazed up very meekly at polly looking for all the world like a bold-headed adjutant dressed for a holiday of course all sorts of theories of the theft got about at first one of the most popular and at the same time most quickly exploded being that young schwartz had told a cock-and-bull story and was the actual thief himself however as i said before that was quickly exploded as mr schwartz senior a very wealthy merchant never allowed his son's carelessness to be a serious loss to his kind employers As soon as he thoroughly grasped all the circumstances of the extraordinary case, he drew a cheque for ten thousand five hundred pounds and remitted it to Messrs Winslow and Vassal. It was just, but it was also high-minded. All Liverpool knew of the generous action, as Mr. Winslow took care that it should, and any evil suspicion regarding young Mr. Schwartz vanished as quickly as it had come. Then, of course, there was the theory about the Prince and his suite, and to this day I fancy there are plenty of people in Liverpool, and also in London, who declare that the so-called Russian police officer was a confederate. No doubt that theory was very plausible, and Messrs. Winslow and Vassal spent a good deal of money in trying to prove a case against the Russian prince. Very soon, however, that theory was also bound to collapse. Mr. Fairburn, whose reputation as an investigator of crime waxes in direct inverted ratio to his capacities, did hit upon the obvious course of interviewing the managers of the larger London and Liverpool agents de charge, he soon found that Prince Semyonitz had converted a great deal of Russian and French money into English banknotes since his arrival in this country. More than thirty thousand pounds in good, solid, honest money was traced to the pockets of the gentleman with the sixteen quarterings. It seemed, therefore, more than improbable that a man who was obviously fairly wealthy would risk imprisonment and hard labor, if not worse, for the sake of increasing his fortune by ten thousand pounds. However, the theory of the prince's guilt has taken firm root in the dull minds of our police authorities. They have had every information with regard to Prince Semyonitz's antecedents from Russia. His position, his wealth have been placed above suspicion, and yet they suspect and go on suspecting him or his secretary. They have communicated with the police of every European capital, and while they still hope to obtain sufficient evidence against those they suspect, they calmly allow the guilty to enjoy the fruit of his clever roguery. The guilty? said polly who do you think who do i think knew at that moment that young schwartz had money in his possession he said excitedly wriggling in his chair like a jack-in-the-box obviously someone was guilty of that theft who knew that schwartz had gone to interview a rich russian and would in all probability return with a large sum of money in his possession who indeed but the prince and his secretary she argued but just now you said just now i said that the police were determined to find the prince and his secretary guilty They did not look further than their own stumpy noses. Messrs. Winslow and Vassal spent money with a free hand in those investigations. Mr. Winslow, as the senior partner, stood to lose over nine thousand pounds by that robbery. Now with Mr. Vassal it was different. When I saw how the police went on blundering in this case, I took the trouble to make certain inquiries. The whole thing interested me so much, and I learnt all that I wished to know. I found out, namely, that Mr. Vassal was very much a junior partner in the firm. That he only drew ten percent of the profits, having been promoted lately to a partnership from having been senior assistant. Now the police did not take the trouble to find that out. But you don't mean that. I mean that in all cases where robbery affects more than one person, the first thing to find out is whether it affects the second party equally with the first. I proved that to you, didn't I, over the robbery in Fillamore Terrace? There, as here, one of the two parties stood to lose very little in comparison with the other. Even then she began. Wait a moment, for I found out something more. The moment I had ascertained that Mr. Vassel was not drawing more than about five hundred pounds a year from the business profits, I tried to ascertain at what rate he lived and what were his chief vices. I found that he kept a fine house in Albert Terrace. Now the rents of those houses are two hundred fifty pounds a year. Therefore, speculation, horse-racing, or some sort of gambling must help to keep up that establishment. "'Speculation and most forms of gambling "'are synonymous with debt and ruin. "'It is only a question of time. "'Whether Mr. Vassel was in debt or not at the time, "'that I cannot say, but this I do know, "'that ever since that unfortunate loss to him "'of about one thousand pounds, "'he has kept his house in nicer style than before, "'and he now has a good banking account "'at the Lancashire and Liverpool Bank, "'which he opened a year after his heavy loss.' "'But it must have been very difficult,' "'argued Polly. "'What?' he said to have planned out the whole thing? For carrying it out was mere child's play. He had twenty-four hours in which to put his plan into execution. Why, what was there to do? Firstly, to go to a local printer in some sort of -of out-of-the-way part of town and get him to print a few cards with the high-sounding name. That, of course, is done while you wait. Beyond that there was the purchase of a good second-hand uniform, fur coat, and a beard and a wig from a customer's. No, no, the execution was not difficult. It was the planning of it all. The daring that was so fine. Schwartz, of course, was a foreigner. He had only been in England a little over a fortnight. Vassal's broken English misled him. Probably he did not know the junior partner very intimately. I have no doubt that but for his uncle's absurd British prejudice and suspicions against the Russian prince, Schwartz would not have been so ready to believe in the latter's roguery. As I said, it would be a great boon if English tradesmen studied Gotha more. But it was clever, wasn't it? I couldn't have done it much better myself that last sentence was so characteristic. Before Polly could think of some plausible argument against his theory, he was gone, and she was trying vainly to find another solution to the Liverpool mystery. End of chapter 13